Andy Warhol said everyone in the future will be famous for 15 minutes. But I don't think that's true. I think we're all famous to 15 people. Are you one of the 15 people who consider me famous? If so, you might be interested in donating to the Stand Up Tragedy crowdfunding campaign that I'm running. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and it's also a podcast where people try to make you laugh until you cry and cry until you laugh. I run the show, I present it, I often do tragic performances at it, and I'm taking it up to the Edinburgh Festival. But me and the Stand Up Tragedy team need your help to get there. We're running an Indiegogo campaign, so if you go to www.standuptragedy.co.uk, you can find a link to the campaign there. I believe in making free art. Stand Up Tragedy is going up to Edinburgh as part of the Free Fringe. That's all about artists not having to pay any money to hire out the venues and audiences not having to pay any money to go and see the art. Stand Up Tragedy will be podcasting daily throughout the festival and all of those podcasts will be free. But to make free stuff, it costs money. And if you can afford to help me make that free stuff, please do. Because it's not very much money really in the big scheme of things we're looking for. We're looking to hit $3,500. And that money will help me and a team of seven people go up to Edinburgh and put on tragedy every night at the Fiddler's Elbow from 6.30 till 7.30 from the 3rd to the 14th of August. We're going to have amazing acts performing every night to audiences for free. We're going to also be sharing those performances with the entire world throughout August in the podcast. So if you can give us a little bit to help us get there, to help us pay for the accommodation, we'd really, really, really appreciate it. And in return, we give you loads of amazing perks like unique pieces of art that were painted by stand-up tragedy artists. We'll come round to your house if it's feasible and cook you a tragic meal. You can be a guest on Getting Better Acquainted. We'll write you tragic stories and we'll sing you tragic songs. Our last London gig is on the 4th of July at the Dog Star in Brixton, starting at 7.30, and we've got comedian Josie Long as our headline act. It's going to be a really amazing night, and if you want to come along and support the tragedy by paying for the tickets to that gig, then please do so. In advance, they're £5. On the door, they're £7. Again, go to the Stand Up Tragedy website. That's where you can buy the tickets for that if you want to come along. Next week, I'm going to be announcing the upcoming season that's going to be happening on Getting Better Acquainted. So listen out for that. And I'll also have a little bit of news about my Resonance FM version of the Getting Better Acquainted show, which, if you remember, is going out weekly at 7.30 on Thursdays and 10 o'clock on Fridays. You can listen to it at 104.4 FM or online on the Resonance FM website if you live outside the South Bank area.
I realised then that the politics of how we control science and technology and how we talk about that and then how we mediate that is is really important and is also really an interesting kind of clash between the media and different ideas about science. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Today we're getting better acquainted with Alice. Hello Alice. Hello. <laughs> the first question that I ask people is how do you know me? Which is a, a weird one. We met at Helen Zaltzman's birthday party which was in Crystal Palace Park by the dinosaurs and Helen has made dinosaur shaped cakes, lemon drizzle, Tyrannosaurus rexes. I was very, very impressed with the spread actually. She, she made some amazing sausage rolls that I think of fondly even now <laughs> yeah those dinosaurs are amazing as well in crystal palace i've not seen them before oh, what, the, the actual dinosaurs yeah were the the dinosaurs. A, well both both were amazing but the actual dinosaurs were particularly i'm a like, big fan of the crystal palace dinosaurs yeah. i saw a blue peter thing about them when i was a kid and then it became this amazingly exotic thing that i really wanted to go and see because i'd seen it on television and mum kept promising to take me but because i lived in north london obviously south london was just like somewhere we never went <laughs> it was way harder to go there than aberdeen um so we never went until i was like 17 or something and then I visited and it was I went on my own it was this oh, moment wow. of great liberation from my parents so I could go to <laughs> Crystal Palace on my own I had to take like three buses and I saw them and then I studied them which I, I, yeah I'm quite into the dinosaurs I've been known to do impersonations of them while lecturing I get quite excited by the them. actual like the, those statues those particular statues yeah well they are very interesting they are really interesting because they're like Darwin's they're like ideas of what dinosaurs are rather than actually dinosaurs. It's like Darwin's Walk or something. There's a Darwin's Walk podcast you can listen to, which, oh, wow. which was done for the Darwin big anniversary a few years ago. But the main person behind those dinosaurs was a guy called Richard Owen, who founded the Natural History Museum. Also the guy who coined the word dinosaur, one of the first major professional paleontologists. The story was, this is me simplifying it a bit for humour, he wanted to be involved in the Great Exhibition, which is the space originally around Hyde Park, Kensington Gardens, which which was the first Crystal Palace that then moved to the area it's now known as Crystal Palace and the leftovers of the Great Exhibition became what is now the Science Museum in the V&A. He wasn't involved as much as he wanted to be, he was quite a pushy man, so he kind of is a bit of a sort of couple of fingers up to the, the Great Exhibition people, built his new Natural History Museum opposite the then South Kensington Museum which later became the V&A which at the time wasn't as nearly as beautiful as the V&A is now and, right. and the Natural History Museum is gorgeous yeah no it um, is. so it was a real sort of like well you didn't let me be involved I've got a way bigger and better museum than you <laughs> and he also then as a sort of stop to him they let him have a big role in the Crystal Palace when it moved down to Sydenham including these these dinosaur models which were based on his ideas of what dinosaurs are I mean yeah. all models of dinosaurs are ideas so yeah, no, that's sorry right. I'm going to full lecturing mode but this is one of my favorite topics so Jurassic Park is the same thing it's still our idea of dinosaurs it's our best idea we've got in fact some of the scientists who worked as advisors on Jurassic Park on all the movies the one of the reasons they did it was it allowed them to visualize their ideas in a way that they wouldn't have access to as scientists right. because of the amazing industrial light and magic you know the sort of stuff yeah, that you have the um, for, for the movie industry it meant they could watch them particularly move because they were really interested in thinking they had an idea of how they might move but being able to influence how they look on film allowed them to see it more effectively and think about it it also allowed them to be the way that the public saw dinosaurs because there'll be multiple different views that scientists have about what dinosaurs look like there's a dominant view which was the ones generally would get folded into movies and things but they still got to sort of solidify that was a way in which scientific consensus got made this was very much the case for Richard Owen 
Is it Richard Owen? I'm now worrying if it's the right name. Anyway, this dude who set up the Natural History Museum. <laughs> because he was having a big fight with a guy called Gideon Mantle at the time around the iguanodon. And Mantle said that the iguanodon was on two hind legs, two legs, you know, like, like humans walk. And Owen said that they were on all fours. But Owen was the one who owned the, the, the park, had the control over the park, so the iguanodons there are on all fours. Oh, and right. now we, we think the best yeah. scientific advice is that Mantle was actually right. And many scientists at the time thought he was right, but Owen was far more powerful. Yeah, that's one of the, 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 the fact that they're on all fours is, is one of the things that makes them look like un, unlike what I consider, like what yeah. you normally think dinosaurs are. And the other thing is they've got weird eyes, it's really yeah, noticeable. They, they kind have. of look, and it's just because of the Victorian idea of what the dinosaurs' eyes were like. They're a bit like Quentin Blake illustrations I think yeah no that's true I definitely would recommend people to go to that's in Crystal Palace Park it is and if you go look at the Iguanodon and also look that it's on all fours and be marvelled by the fact that the paleontologist just to annoy Gideon Mantle more had dinner in it they had a dinner party before they put the top on it when it was just the head it was in two halves you can imagine sort of like you take a part of Easter egg or something the bottom half of it is the Iguanodon legs because it was on all fours it had a bigger surface area or bigger sort of uh, yeah space you could sit several people to have dinner in it and they have this lovely punch cartoon of them having dinner in it and singing a song all about iguanodons (laughs) (laughs) which if it had been on on two legs there wouldn't have been enough space for them this was all just to rub salt in the wound to poor Gideon Mantle and this is kind of leading us on really to I guess the second question I ask everyone which is uh, what do you do now well, I used to be lecturer in science communication, so I would give lectures like that all the time. Before that, I worked in science education. I used to work on stage at the Science Museum doing shows for kids, hence also my desire to pretend I'm a dinosaur and bitch about the Natural History Museum because obviously the Science Museum is better. You were in the launch pad? Yeah, I, I was a professional bubble show maker. Oh, wow. I take my niece to the launch pad like, every time she's in town. She loves the Science Museum, so it's like, yeah, I've, you... I've spent a lot of time there. When I was a kid, I was always in the National History Museum. Oh, really? I didn't even know about the Science Museum until my niece came along, yeah. Oh, it's been there since, probably would have been since you were a kid because you probably Yeah, I mean, I know, I, I'm know. i sure I knew it existed, but I didn't know it was fun for kids. I think it's more fun for kids than the Natural History Museum, which is not to say the Natural History Museum isn't great. No, well, they've got more things designed specifically for kids. Yeah, that's right. The, in many ways, more children go to the Natural History Museum because the dinosaurs are more just attractive. Well, yeah. The Science Museum, since the 30s, they decided that children were a special audience and they built the, the, one of the first children's galleries in any museums um, in 1931, children's galleries, and they sort of trundled along in different forms until mid-80s when they opened Launchpad and that's gone through various different iterations since then. But now I am a science policy researcher at the University of Sussex, sit in the middle of a lovely nature reserve and study scientific advice and I don't normally get to lecture students which is probably good for the future of human race. Um, (laughs) I also write a lot, a science blogger for The Guardian, a climate change editor for The New Left Project and I sometimes write for other people too and I have a podcast with Martin Ostwick. um, Who's a previous guest on the show as well. Yes, and I knit. You knit? When I sort of was coming to do this conversation I was like, I probably should look at your blog. I looked at your bio and your bio mentioned knitting. I was like, ah, knitting. That'll be it. For a long time, that was the first thing people would know about me. I'd go to the Royal Society and I'd be like, I'm working, I'm lecturer in science communication at Imperial College, I'm here in a professional capacity. And people would run up to me and show me their socks and stuff because their wife had knitted a pattern that I designed. Um, (laughs) One of my knitting patterns was published in Wired. I don't knit as much as I used to, but I, I, I... I have quite a lot of followers on Twitter, and I swear at least a third of them are knitters. People think they're scientists, but I think they're knitters. Were you into knitting before, like, early on in your life, or has it been a recent thing? I mainly took it up to annoy my mother. Um, (laughs) I've only been about 
probably about 15 years ago, maybe a little less. Ten, no, about 10 years ago. Sorry, yeah, about 10 years ago. I'm not that old. 10 years ago. And I had a long bus journey and a friend had started knitting and I just kind of got jealous of her and I realised that it would wind up my mum if I started baking and knitting and doing all the things that her mum used to do that she decided not to do. And then I got really addicted to it. It's quite mathematical and uh, it is a good thing to do if you've got a long bus journey. Yeah, no, I, I, I recognise it. Like, I know a few people who, who knit and, and stuff, but I, I, I could never get that. I could never really get the hang of it. Not very coordinated. Neither am I. I think once you get addicted, then it's hard to get out the other end. But then I started cycling, and I think knitting and cycling is a bad combination. I think that would be dangerous. You shouldn't do it at the same time, yeah. certainly. So I stopped, and now I write. That's the sort of thing that I find myself addicted to do, and up till two o'clock in the morning. I used to be up really late, just, oh, I'll just knit another line, and now I just, I'll just write another line. Um, so I suppose that's my more of my hobby addiction. So you're, you're, you're someone who does things quite intensively, I guess. Sounds like when you're when you're interested in them. That sounds, yeah, no, I'm quite lazy, sounds really. Sounds like I'm, yeah. No, it's weird though, isn't it? I, I'm like that. I'm lazy, yeah. and I'm also kind of absolutely capable of being really obsessed and like yeah, twitchy and up all night doing whatever. Um, and Maybe you're not lazy. Maybe you're just exhausted. Yeah, that's what, that actually might be the case. I'm, I've been thinking about that recently. Actually, <laughs> that might be the case. <laughs> you, you've, you've thrown me by cutting me to the quick right? no 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 that's good so we met at that party mm. but I saw you at the story this year you did a talk about science communication for children I work with kids under five so I was particularly interested in the, the idea of books being kind of ways of communicating ideology as much as any other way of communicating ideology and I hadn't, hadn't really thought as much about educational books as being and I should have I should have thought of it like I look at the media the adult media and I think yeah. I don't trust the adult media but I never think about do I trust the child media like your uh, talk was making me think a lot about that and it also had an ace load of Captain Planet trivia uh, that I, I and I went and watched so um, yeah you, you talked about a particular episode of Captain Planet where they kind of try and solve all of the extreme conflicts in the world oh, it's uh, early 90s so they do northern ireland and apartheid south africa and israel, israel palestine, palestine yeah. all at once in one yeah in one episode and nuclear war generally that's right yeah in and the, obviously global warming is a constant worry throughout but then it ends i so i watched it i went home and watched it and it ends with like a message of don't bully people like that's like kind of the way that they kind of summed it up at the end i was like wow they've just they've really like covered every Every part of what it is to, to, to not, not get on as human beings, they've covered it here, but I don't know if they've solved it. The funny thing about that, though, was I was really expecting it to be, like, it is worth watching. It's a curiosity, yeah. so I would recommend people watch it. It's on YouTube. You'll find it easy enough, and I'll link yeah, to it. If you, if you Google Captain Planet Northern Ireland or the Troubles, yeah, you get any, it. Any yeah, any of that. But, but it's really boring as well. Like, I was expecting it to be really entertaining, but it's really slow-paced. And the accents are so bad. Oh, the accents are so bad. That's how I found it. Someone was linked to it saying, particularly the Irish accent is bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's noticeable, I guess. Well, I thought, like, the the American, whichever the planeteers it was that went to Ireland sounded more Irish than the two characters who were (laughs) Irish. And actually, uh, I thought that the South African accents were probably the worst, actually. They were really... (laughs) I always wonder about the there's a Russian character in it because it's it was pre well it was over a particularly interesting period at the point of sort of detente and the end of the Cold War but they wanted to have kind of East and West healing as part of the story of it and I don't know enough Russians to know how 
bad that accent is, but or I certainly didn't at the time. Maybe it would be interesting to know how many different nations feel offended by the accent. Yeah, no, it will. But it's it is slow. I think that makes you realise how much children's film, children's TV is sped up in yes. the last twenty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, all films the same, isn't it? If you yeah. watch a, a, a silent movie or whatever, it's so slow compared to what we're used to. Like, you watch old Doctor Who. It's just like, wow, yeah. it's so slow. Yeah, yeah. And I quite like that. It really changes how you think about it. But I can't, Doctor Who from the sixties or seventies almost expect it, but. Captain Planet. I mean, Captain Planet is getting quite old now, but it doesn't seem that long ago. No, well, it's what I remember it from my childhood, as I'm sure you do. So that's probably why I was like, oh, I have to see that episode. But uh, yeah, it's a strange curiosity. It's pre-Pokemon. I remember Pokemon as as a teenager, sort of being aware of that. Oh, it's suddenly got very fast. And I think people might have had a similar reaction at the extreme changes that went on in children's media and sort of Tiz was certainly in the UK. That's when. Okay, yeah. Americans took it longer to change for Nickelodeon, but I think that must have felt very different from Blue Pe- oh, what Blue Peter was then to something like Tiz was. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, it, and you, so that talk you did at the story, that's mm-hmm. kind of a, around one of your qualified, like, is it a PhD or something? My PhD, which I finished nearly five years ago, so it's a while ago. Like I said, now my research mainly. Well, at the moment, I'm studying things like energy journalism and the sort of constraints that journalists and energy are on. I did some work on all science coverage of the BBC a couple of years ago. Um, I'm interested in things like processes of scientific advice and how we listen to professional scientists in policy. But my PhD was children's science books, which was in the context of trying to understand how adults share science with young people and how science gets related to society in different ways. It was just a case study in that. And having worked at the Science Museum, I knew that there was interesting ways in which adults chose talk to children about science yeah. um, case study I did was actually the horrible science books you know horrible histories yeah. did the horrible science books as just as a case study in books that people write for kids about science and then around the edges of that I was interested in some other books and I collected a load of books on green issues and so then developed up some. So I noticed that there was a sort of spike of books about green issues for young people in the early 90s which I think going around Rio in 1992 certainly was part of my own experience of learning about green issues and then there was another one on the run up to Copenhagen when climate change was sort of quite fashionable again sort of on the run up to that before climate gate and again you see a sort of desire to talk to the children about it for various reasons and so um, I thought it was interesting to compare those and um, I didn't want to just be limited to just books so I looked at Captain Planet but actually the story I think I also talked about poo books yeah you did you yeah. talked about and which maybe where the under five stuff comes in because yeah. that was the horrible science books in particular use a lot of scatological humour and so I then looked at how the histories of that going back to like 18th century things for adults just like poo jokes and fart jokes and the carnivalesque and stuff but particularly around children's books and why different types of children's books talk about shit and for horrible science, I also wanted to look at things because they have a lot of books about medical issues because they cover medical issues as part of the science thing they cover. So they'll talk, they'll make jokes about snot and poo and puke and things just because they think it's funny. It's that kind of style of humour, yeah. sort of Beano like humour. Well, kids do find it funny. Well, it is frustrating to me as somebody who doesn't find that sort of humour that funny. Do you find that the kids? Because one of the things I noticed it. with I didn't my study was all just about what adults think about the kids, not actual kids. But it did make me wonder sometimes if it was a thing that the adults assumed. I wonder if it is, but I don't know where it starts. You yeah. know, like uh, certainly when I worked in libraries, the kids always came in for the books, like Captain Underpants and all yeah. of that, all of that stuff that they really, really enjoyed. And definitely, little kids will always laugh at stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I think it's a way of signalling a child-only space. 
a sort of some particular form, like Captain Underpants in particular, it sounds childish. It's yeah. a way of saying this is for you, it's special. Yeah, it's a bit yeah, naughty, it's not what you're meant to do with the adults, so you can have a particular kind of humour and it's a particular relationship between the writer and the child that you can get from that kind of thing, which I certainly think is what's happening in horrible science. It makes marks them out from other um, non-fiction books. Now non-fiction books are a bit more messy and comp- they've been influenced by horrible science. But when they started in the mid-90s, it was much more unusual to have that style. Non-fiction books were more like eyewitness, they're very kind of straightforward, very reverent, more like a textbook. And the idea of applying humour to science just seemed weird. Now now we're quite used to that, I think. We have that for adults as well, like yeah. Brian Cox and the Monkey Cage right, yeah. and all the stuff that Robin Ince has done. But um, there were funny scientists and people applying humour in science before, but it was a little bit more rare, and I think that it was sort of unusual to see that happening in the 90s with kids' books. It came off the back of the history books, which interestingly sort of developed out of things like Blackadder. So sense, Terry yeah. Deary, who writes horrible histories, had his own agendas and interests. And yeah, worked he, with he's, kids really, and he's, he's really left-wing, isn't he, I think? I don't well, know. I heard, I heard he was. Yeah, well, it's complicated. <laughs> I know a lot of lefties got really annoyed at him recently for something. I think it was at libraries. He made some statement about it. it made Everyone went really crazy about it. Well, that's the thing, though, about being left-wing. Though. It's really easy to alienate the rest of the left. <laughs> one thing you don't like. Um, he has a bit, yeah, he's, he's got a sort of... This sort of history for the people that runs through it it depends on how you define left and um, yeah. he's an interesting guy he's certainly driven by his own ideas and but I think the publishers from reading around the publishing context at the time they asked him to write it he wasn't nearly so iconic as he is now he was just a jobbing writer yeah. uh, partly because of the success of things like uh, Blackadder yeah that makes sense uh, that kind of they were, yeah. that was a family show as well like kids did even though they weren't supposed to like adults and, and kids totally watched that together I, d- I definitely watched Blackadder with my family growing mm. up uh, although I don't necessarily have a, a, a typical family, so maybe maybe maybe, maybe not all children. Sure I don't know. But well, with kids, with kids, you also do have these books that try and talk about hoeing and like specifically the younger ones, like just to help kids get through the emotional experience of doing a poo. And yeah, no, I'm familiar with those it. books. I don't go near. I mean, I do children's story and song times with the under fives on behalf of the library service. So I'm representing yeah. the libraries. But I won't go near anything with that kind of humour in, or anything instructional. Certainly, I won't go near. Because, well, I think as a as a man with a group, and you got to remember, I, I got like so a group of children between two and five, say, and their parents. Yeah. So I'm like in a circle of of. of, of you know, women, adult women, and their children, and I don't really feel like yeah. there's those books. Have you heard of them? Like pants. There's lots of yeah. books about pants, and I won't go anywhere near that stuff because uh, I just I just feel uncomfortable, and I think that that I'm just going to communicate that to the children rather than the positive messages. The last thing they want. This is meant yeah. to be liberating. Yeah. And I think all of, I guess a lot of the ones that are really trying to help kids through the more emotional aspects of it are meant more to be things that children would, when they're older, would read themselves or would read with a parent rather than yeah, in a sort of school or library situation. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, they're definitely for parents and kids, I think, those kind of instructional ones. I definitely, I'm definitely never going to get some, into that. Some of them come with like leaflets for parents, actually, some of the more medical books, which will come into a larger genre of like books about diseases and I did some work where I looked in at, I looked into kind of leaflets that kids get given about diseases it was one of the areas if I took kids and science further as a research topic which I didn't but if I had it would have been really interesting to look at materials that are made specifically for young people with health problems or yeah that would be very interesting and and, and uh, sex education as well I think yeah. is a fascinating one like there's some really good books out there and there's some really bad books out there and, and the history of it's really interesting, interesting as well the history of, there's some work on the history of sex education one of my one of the few one of my students 
students I'm very proud of when I had regular students who went off to do academic work. Most of our students in that master's course I taught on went off to be journalists and they did it as practical training, it wasn't sort of an academic thread, but a few did go off and do academic things. And one of them took her dissertation, which I supervised, on looking at books and education materials around anorexia but not specifically for anorexics but for the people around them so works particularly educational materials that were for teachers or for other young people who might be at school with an anorexic so understanding other people's anorexia I need to follow up and see where she's probably finished by now and see where it got to Um, that's a really interesting area because you think of these books as sort of oh you've got a problem I'll give you a leaflet or a book or something but it's part of a social context and I remember books about AIDS when I was a kid and, and like and sex and stuff like I was talking about Charter at 28 and stuff and the problems about being able to talk about homosexuality yeah. and how our school and our local library still had books like David Has Two Mums and stuff because they would sneak in but they probably shouldn't have had them and how important that sort of stuff is yeah no that stuff is really important I think and, and, and I mean definitely it can make a, a massive difference if it's a if, if a child can find in a library something that their parents wouldn't necessarily condone, mm. that can that can change their mind. But then that's a, a very complicated mm. uh, area where obviously right. lots of parents feel that they should be able to control what their mm. children think. And and, I, and and it's very easy to say, oh, you, they shouldn't be able to. But I mean, if I was a parent, there are a lot of messages I wouldn't want my children to receive. I mean, they wouldn't be... I would want them to receive the, the messages that, that two, two men or two women can have a child, but I wouldn't want them to, to receive the opposite. So it is, it is a complicated area. I mean, I guess you have to go with parental decision, finally, I guess. But well, I guess under fives are different from older ones as well. It's a point where the yeah, kids are going to look find that's stuff right. themselves anyway. That's right. When, when, when children are teenagers, I think the, it goes very much the other way of that the child's rights... Uh, should be adhered to rather than the mm. parents. Science and the media, really, are your two sort of branches of what you're, what yeah. you're, what you look at. I mean, did which came first? Um, well, I. Um, Okay, they, came, they happened together really yeah. like I was kind of always interested in science and I was really bad at writing when I was a kid um, dyslexic and my best mate at school was a really good writer so I just thought that she was the good the writer and I was a rubbish writer in a way like my, my, my brother's really good at music so that means I'm rubbish at music I'm perfectly okay he's like oh he's, he thinks he's rubbish at, at art and science because that was what I was good at it's just that stupid binary that you yeah. can get in as a child so I was like oh, I don't do any writing or reading I read loads and wrote loads but I thought I didn't I was a science person I like maths and drawing and I was going to either be an artist or a mathematician and then I'm just not very good at getting focused in things and Muzz might have been demonstrated by saying oh I like doing this and this and this and knowing that knitting thing as well found myself in a weird set of A-levels that didn't have any real direction but I was interested in I just my school I don't know was maybe rubbish or good in letting me do that and then I (laughs) quite political um, and had been when I was young as well and ended up and I realised then that the politics of how we control science and technology and how we talk about that and then how we mediate that is is really important and is also really interesting and the kind of clash between the media and different ideas about science It's not just science in the media. We often think about science media studies as interesting because you've got science on one side and the media on the other, and that clash is interesting. And it is true, but actually, you've got sciences and medias. Media, <laughs> they need to be medias. But yeah, you've got these multiple groups working together and different views of all these different things, fighting and different ideologies of both of them going through it. And even then, we were starting to see changes in media. We still were faxing out press releases, but email and internet were sort of 
of the road and we kind of knew about that and CND being a very old institution you could tell how it had been different before and I did some work in the archives and you know, I realised how fascinating all that stuff was and then I just fell into this job at the Science Museum because I didn't want to go to university and then I found a, a degree that did science and the media together and so I could keep not being focused okay. and then haven't been able to focus since because I never really got focused. You could say it's not focused or you could say that looking at these things at the same time is really a really useful way of, of, of approaching it. I guess in some ways I just got my focus of something as specialist as science media yeah. overly early. Most people do that having been a scientist or been a journalist yeah, or something. Yeah, and, 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 then, and then crossing over later on. I, yeah. did, I acquired that early. So you went to the, you were working in the Science Museum to avoid going to university? Well, I just or didn't know what I wanted to do and then a job turned up and so I took it rather than doing it. I was going to just... I found I thought I'll work in a shop for six months and go travelling and then I got this amazing job at the Science Museum which I probably shouldn't have got but it was good fun. And I thought at first I'd just do that for six months and go travelling but it was so much fun. I stayed there six years and I decided to get a degree so I went part-time at the museum and did my degree and then did another degree and then did another degree. <laughs> so you, you may have had a little gap before you started going into academia but you've made up for it since by getting lots of degrees. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's uh, Yeah, five, I think. <laughs> Depends on how many you count, but yes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, it wasn't a big, It was. I suppose it's really just really a gap year but um, <laughs> yeah, I kind of then, I worked while I studied so I kept a f- foot in, more than a foot. Well, it's a, it's a job that really fits with your area yeah. that you were interested in. Anyway. And I had a couple of other jobs while I was doing it too. I worked for, it was National Year of Science for two years because it was so successful we did it again. <laughs> we went through this phase of deciding whether it should, we could come up with some kind of planet that had a two, like a much longer year. We just how it was just like, you know, <laughs> a year on another planet. And then just, I think we re-bland, rebranded it Planet Science. I think we kept the idea of the planet. Um, I worked on that for the government. Um, sort of Department for Education project run by Nesta. Um, I did that for a few years while again I was a student and I did some freelance work. That's, that's why I do things like work f- write for the Guardian and stuff because I've always done that writing thing. For someone who, who, who wasn't really hates writing, writing, yeah. <laughs> when you say that you've always been political, what do you mean by that? Well, I guess I, I grew up in North London in the 80s where politics was always a big issue. Ken Livingstone was our local MP. My mum was a teacher during a lot of the strikes and things, so it was something that would be talked about. My dad, my dad's a musician, but um, was a part of, big part of the musicians' union, so very heavily would be talking about sort of workers' rights around music and was very committed to the labour movement, although he then went quite green around sort of... Yeah, early 90s with Rio and stuff. And they'd have big fights about whether what it meant to not vote Labour, I suppose, as people did then. I remember them fighting about it. And so it was always just in the house and around school. And I was the only white kid in my class for a long time as well. Uh, and so you're just sort of aware of racial politics. Yeah. And you you notice forms of social exclusion and things like that when you... I think people, all people do in different ways. That was just my personal way of learning about it. Um, and it was quite normal to be interested in those things in my school and with my friends. Sure. I mean, I was into politics from an early age too. Probably because, you know, my, my dad worked in uh, documentary films uh, for the coal board. So he, wow. he, he it was kind of a workers' cooperative, but it was working for the coal board. Yeah. So, I mean, he uh, worked in... A, a lot of his working life in mining communities that, yeah. he, that he then saw uh, destroyed and you know my mum was a nurse and then a social worker so uh, both of them would call themselves certainly at times in their lives they would both call themselves socialists and my, I think they probably would both call themselves socialists now and I wouldn't call myself a socialist anymore 
but I, I certainly was when I was a, a kid. I was in militant labour. Wow! Yeah. Uh, when you were a kid, 15, yeah. 15, right. yeah, yeah. When exactly? Yeah, no. I went. I, when I, I, I used to sell the paper in the mm. in the in the town centre, which didn't make. I already was getting bullied at school, and then adding trying to sell paper to papers to people on a Saturday morning yeah. was always a nightmare. I think they had high hopes for me because I was a kid that yeah. was in the organisation, but. I went away to young, young militant. They just called. They called. They changed their name to the Socialist Party just as yeah. I ended, because militant labour just sounded yeah. too scary. I guess they didn't want to scare people. I went went to this conference and I was doodling while the person was talking, and they sent a note round telling me to not be doodling. And when <laughs> they told me not to doodle, that was it. That was it. Like that for me represented the kind of structure that I wasn't interested in being in. Yeah, uh, which is I, a weird thing. I sort of went to the odd SWP thing as a teenager, and then they were just, the enemy when I yeah, was. Yeah, they kid. were just. You know, <laughs> well, it was that we we meet these other people who are maybe a year or two older than us when I was like sixteen or something, and they'd clearly been part of it for a long time and already quite inculcated into the group, and it just took this feeling of they talk in particular ways that in some ways were quite impressive. They'd read lots of stuff, but it just felt a bit like a cult, yeah. and so I, that was one of the reasons I think I felt a bit. Like I didn't really want to be part of the party political stuff, and New Labour didn't interest me. Well, no. um, although I was very excited when Labour got in, that was a very—I remember that day was it, emotionally. It was, me too. Yeah, but it was amazing, wasn't it? It felt like the world was going to change. It was so sunny as well. I think there's a lot to be said for the power of weather. I yeah, it was just incredibly oh, sunny. I know. Well, I well I was up all night. I mean, I'm sure you, everyone was, weren't we? And when Portillo went, that was amazing. Yes, the moment when Portillo. I mean, I, in fact, I, we're talking about just around about the time when I left Militant, probably. I, I remember like staying up with my dad all night drinking whiskey and then going into school the next day really hungover and like <laughs> everyone being happy and like the teachers yeah. being happy and everyone was like patting everybody else on the back and because I, I was in Cardiff so oh, like yeah, it was yeah. like it was it was a very much a non-Tory uh, well, city it's just the schools <sighs> our school was just it was just expected like yeah Ken Livingston's a local MP and when he came in everyone thought he was a bit right wing and that was when he was red Ken that kind of <laughs> well it used to areas used to be really I guess they still are in some ways but polarised like yeah. But then I, yeah, I sort of got more into peace movement and being more issue led, I guess. Yeah, if, yeah. If, I mean, I'm certainly more likely to throw my hat with an issue rather than be a member of any any organisation. But I think that's because, you know, I guess currently I would describe myself as an anarchist. I guess, but I'm, I say that, you know, fully aware that I'm on. That means I'm on the terrorist. L- list like now you know, I kind of I've been more and more sympathising with forms of anarchist thought as I get older there's a yeah. thing you're meant to get more right wing yeah, no I, get more left wing and also more my, my more process. alienated by the idea of left and right yeah and uh, also yeah about freedoms I mean it's, and it's not I, when I say I'm an anarchist it, the, the thing I don't like about that word is it makes people think that I'm first of all I'm absolutely against violence yeah right so I'm a, I'm a pacifist and I'm also a, what I call a pragmatic anarchist so I don't yeah. think we. You, I don't think I think Reform, reforming the system is certainly one way to go, and we we should do that yeah. rather than there's a lot of people around who are like, you know, full communism or nothing, you know, and it's like, well, actually, what will make people's everyday life a little bit better now is if we stop being like that and actually just try to work together. I'm also quite strongly democratic, which pisses yes, off some of my more left-wing friends. Too, actually, that I don't yeah. think that you should impose full communism in there, and if other people, it's going to take a while before other people would be interested in it, even if that's your aim. Well, there you go. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. I mean, I think the kind of anarchy I subscribe to is a little bit like democracy in that it is 
consensus led and it's it's you know you you decide how you want to like it's not no structure it's that you have no hierarchy and you decide what you're going to do together do you you feel that it's a bit of a sort of weight of ideologies and ideas and reading (laughs) like that's the other thing about it's a bit postmodern I suppose but it's all this you're going to join my group have you read all these things and I know it's cliche to say it but it's true and it just pisses me off a bit yeah and that's another reason why I don't join some of the clubs or so I'm just not very good at joining them. I have read, it's not like I'm completely unaware or, or intellectually unengaged, disengaged with any of these or not interested in some of those histories. It's just that uh, a reading list before you come to meetings is a bit yeah. harsh for some of that. Yeah, and, and it's, I think it's very hard as well. Like There's this kind of group mentality that it seems like political groups become quite entrenched in a certain perspective and they're yeah. not they're not free to like moving around within that and then they have yeah, arguments and then they a, stop and then, yeah, listening to each other and then it's kind of like... Oh, you're doing every, you're doing, you know, <laughs> power or capitalism, or whatever you want to say. You're doing their job for them, really. Yeah. If you're falling out, and so it's weird being. I find the entrenchment annoying in itself as well. Like I, that's one of the things I have as a problem. It's why I like being an academic, because you don't, you can just keep being uncertain and ask questions. And yes. it's also why I like being a journalist, is that you are there to ask questions and not be necessarily aligned. But then politically, that's problematic, and I often get into arguments about whether academics should be more aligned and should just make decisions and should just speak out and say, "Okay, I don't know because it's my job not to know, but I'm pretty sure, and therefore we should do something about this because otherwise, nothing's going to change if I don't apply my idea." Yeah. We should be open about our ideologies as well and reflect upon them. And it's not—I don't want to think about being somehow depoliticized by being an academic. But I do also like that ability to move around a bit and take different points of view and pay devil's advocate and change your mind and always be open to change your mind, which particularly with some bits of the green movement I sometimes feel a bit constrained on though, that, that it's all about pushing a particular idea that's not, that's not to say that lots of greens are entrenched it's just that I have that's something I find discomforting about some areas of political activism and I but I think it's kind of human as well it's, it's unfortunate like when you're banging your head against a brick wall like that can that means that you end up becoming you know dogmatic and yeah. not listening and like because because I mean I think a lot of people who have non-mainstream views can feel quite well, like an alien, <laughs> like, you know, like, sometimes, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sure, like, most people on the left feel this, I'm sure, certainly, I, I feel this, of like, you know, you look at the newspapers, and you look at the government, and you listen to Question Time, and you think, I don't agree, I can see how people kind of take that isolation, and then they find other people who agree with them, and then they got this kind of group that they kind of finally got people on their side, and then that, you know, it's just and you want to push a particular idea because you know that the other idea is the dominant one so it sounds like you're being really dogmatic but that's just the conversation you got caught up in actually you're yeah. more of a rich and complex human being like it was one of the that's reasons right, why I said yeah. I was quick to say I don't think all oh, greens are like this and stuff is that actually I know a lot of greens that are very particularly on things like nuclear are really like, reflective and have quite complicated and happy to change open minded views about all these things but then sometimes it sounds like they're pushing a particular point and the scientific yeah. community is exactly the same it's often seen as really dogmatic and, and like oh you're just giving us truths whereas most scientists are like oh, God, I don't believe in the notion of like yeah, when, truth when you so ask like, any, but any, any just, scientist when they get down to it they generally say there is no it's all about uncertainty, uncertainty. Yeah. but it just is how it ends up being articulated I actually I was having a fight a couple of about a month or so ago well I wasn't really a guy was picking a fight with me and he got very upset about it all and he wrote a long blog post about it and um, many other people tapped in and started writing blog posts with me about me and I decided not to engage with it because I didn't want to encourage it and also it didn't 
feel right for lots of reasons to engage with it. But there were lots of sort of what I felt was weird perceptions of me. I mean, some of it was just making up, like, oh, Alice Bell is trying to promote the Green Party. Well, I have no relationship with the Green Party, so I can't, uh, why would I? But, like, I mean, if they just, they just sort of make stuff up. But there were a lot of things which I felt, I kind of understand where they're coming from. I can see why, I don't, I don't see why they're making stuff up about me. I can see why you do end up making stuff up about people, because you do just do that. Yeah. And we all do that. And you'd hope that you recognise when you're making something up rather than having anything based in reality. But we all are a bit weird like that sometimes but there were sometimes that they criticised me for sounding dramatic or whatever and I'm like well in that particular context that you have quoted ever so slightly out of context but I can see how that perception came about and I'm not really like that and if we had sat down and had a cup of tea and you got to know me before you drew a judgement you probably wouldn't judge that but if you're going to decide to make that judgement now I can see where it comes from like, yeah, you know. well, that's part of the nature of the media though I think that's part yeah. of the problem of like it's great that we can all connect with each other so much more than we ever could but at the same time one of the things I like about this show is I sit down with people for an hour and have a, a conversation yeah. rather than have like a 140 character throw at you and yeah. then you throw back and then it's like there's no nuances in what we're saying so I don't see you as a, a rounded person and you wouldn't necessarily see me as a rounded person and that's what you see on Twitter and places like that mm. a lot you know but you don't have to I make think. judgments about it like I've got loads of friends who say oh I hate this person or that person or well that's because you're choosing to make a judgment based on that if you actually talk to them like, there's also people who I think are objectionable on Twitter but I'm sure they're really nice in real life and I'm open to that and we should I think we should we should all be open to that yeah I hope we are I mean, but I know I it could be but I mean I think they, not, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it can be I think it can be problematic it's one of the, the other podcasts that I was doing today with Martin Ostwick that set up started because me and Martin realised we were having really annoying conversations where we were hating each other over Twitter because he's a physicist who studies society using physics um, and I'm a sociologist that studies science so we kind of should hate each other but we kind of bumped into each other on the internet and tried to get each other to explain what the other one was doing so like I'd occasionally admittedly I was slightly winding him up asking him to explain magnets and 140 characters wasn't very fair I was deliberately winding him up but uh, he'd equally try and wind me up by getting me to explain really complicated philosophies of science in 140 characters and we're like this is just wrong we're just having these big fights up against each other over the internet it's not working and we're both really frustrated and we realized that problem of trying to get someone who's quite clever and an expert in one area has a real problem communicating with somebody else and who's in another area and so we set up a podcast where we'd have sort of 20 minute conversation between different experts so today we had a expert in medical genetics interviewing a woman who's an expert in particle physics and if they just stumbled across each other on the internet we imagine that they probably just bang against the brick wall of 140 yeah. characters but they actually had a really interesting conversation well that's a really interesting way of doing it as well taking people from these different disciplines because it's it, science is weird like that i mean not weird it, science is like every other area of human yeah. endeavor like that there's always like big camps of people who really don't like you know like biologists and physicists i think traditionally i suppose to not or, not 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 agree on things i don't know i mean i'm not a scientist but i know a few well, scientists and they the, always his, say, the history and sociology of science would say that one of the things that science has done above all other areas of society is sort of exemplar of is tunnelling people down the last couple of hundred years that you turn yourselves into the silos of expertise and we've got a lot out of that by just having people who are employed to think about nothing but a weird particle or a tiny little bit of a particle and not have to be an expert in plumbing or 
biology or reading a book or something because they specialise their expertise. Um, yeah, we get loads out of living in a world built up of multiple experts, but if they can't connect, then it becomes a problem. You get all these cultural gaps. And um, yeah, we all have that with professions. It's modernity, but science is kind of an extreme form of that and one of the drivers of all of that. Um, and so you see it a lot. And so you see it in universities where the different tribes just walk past each other and the biologist doesn't talk to the physicist or whatever. And now we're trying to do more interdisciplinary work. It, is a problem or online people bump into each other we all get that I well, think anyone who does the social media well thinking about like when you say no I mean like Brian because I listen to the infinite monkey cage mm. and Brian Cox kind of always has a joke on that like it, it's, it, it's probably not a joke it's probably serious but he you know he doesn't have very much respect for biologists and yeah. biologists don't have very much respect for him but in the context of that show they do talk and they do communicate and they do take each other's points mm. you know and, and, that, and that's the thing that, that when you sit down and you talk it is, it is different from a written conversation I've certainly got really close friends who I've really fallen out with you know in email form or mm. you know you get to that point where you're like let's just phone them let's just yeah. ring them so this is just not going to get sorted until we actually talk and hear each other's tone of voice mm. see each other's point of view it's good. I think you've got to be quite good friends sometimes to be able to say that I find that increasingly yeah, on things like Twitter I'll say look I'm not trying to close this conversation because I'm avoiding debate it's just that this is unproductive way of doing it. Yeah. And it, I remember a friend, he was having a fight, he's a journalist, he's written about a particularly controversial political issue, and so he gets a lot of people like trying to argue with him about it. And he was having a big fight, I hadn't noticed it. It was on Twitter, so it was with someone he he follows or was following him, I, I don't follow, so I didn't see it. But he then put on Facebook about this, and he said, should we take this off Twitter as the new, I'm taking this outside. Uh, <laughs> do you want to take this outside? You know? yeah, yeah. And I can see how that happens. Like I've done that where you go, look, this is just, can we take this to email or something? And it looks like it's this weird thing, but it's just that it's actually more productive way of having the conversation yeah um, I think there's a th- the, the, the other thing that changes debate online is that it's public mm-hmm. I mean that's that's certainly the problem that people have on Twitter and but that's something I often have on Facebook you know you're, you're like oh you know do I like this been sometimes because I have quite argumentative friends who I love dearly but but I mean there's there's times where I'm like do I really want there to be an argument between three men about abortion happening on my wall in full view of lots and lots of you know women with genuine like actual relationship to this do I really want that sprouting up on my wall and I know that actually nobody's going to see it because nobody 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 does but then some people do I click on on comments so I mean it's, it's it, it gets to the point where you're like hang on we're having this conversation in a place where you know, like my mum can see this conversation. You know, you know, and and and, and it's, it, but we, but you don't mm. think you just get involved in the. You audience. can't see who the other people who are public, like because Facebook's weird like that. You wouldn't have it with somewhere like another public forum, like a, a forum or or Twitter or something. That that's your space. Yeah. And but it's not like someone coming into your front room because if someone comes into your front room and you've got your mum round, they know your mum's round because they can see her. So they're unless they're really awful or, you know, behave themselves. It's like, yeah, like my mum and me are friends on Facebook and so I've sort of pointed out to the odd ex-boyfriend that they might want to be careful about what they say. I remember saying, so I was on a date with somebody and he was like, thanks for letting me know that early on, you know, (laughs) because you've been, you know, and so, yeah, sometimes occasionally friends will say, oh, you know, this person's talking to you a lot and you'd be like, yeah, they're just talking to me a lot. Or I had a friend who... I thought was a bit racist. On that was the one person I defriended on Facebook. Was that he said something that I just and he said it on my wall. And if he'd said it anywhere else, I would have thought it wasn't so awfully racist. That I thought you have to be not in my life anymore. But then coupled with a couple of other things, the fact that he did it on my wall and my my friends could see. Yeah, it's hard. That yeah. I mean, I certainly. I mean, I've I've only unfriended 
one person that I can think of, and I, that was because of just like you get to a, like like I didn't agree with his opinions. I don't even consider them to be opinions, but I, I, I mean, I didn't agree with his stance or his attitude towards abortion, and I didn't agree with his cons- uh, his his feelings around the idea of consent in some areas. I didn't I didn't agree with his take on those things, and I think that they're controversial. But I also, if you won't leave me alone about like it, it just was one of those things where like it. J- because I've posted a lot of things about feminist, like feminist issues, that that just kept on happening, like, and I was just like, I can't, yeah. I, I can't have this interaction with you where you're you're saying these things that I actually find, like, you know, I don't want to say, uh, like, I do, yeah, I find them repellent, I find those attitudes repellent, and I, I, I think that 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 I'm all for people having freedom and of their own lives of their own bodies of their own thoughts of whatever but once people get into any area that's infringing on somebody else's freedoms and rights or whatever then that that's that's not acceptable i can't really you you can't really turn a blind on your on your facebook wall is like that's like a personal space i was talking to a journalist who writes about religion once and he was saying with the whole like he works for a newspaper where they're very open about comment policy and stuff and he said, well, I value the comments. I've learnt a lot about them. But I do get a lot, because it's about religion, it's get a lot of people writing stuff that's quite bad. It's a bit like people just pissing up against your wall. Why are we opening a space for people to come and put excrement on it? And I, I know a blogger who writes about sex and she doesn't have a comment section because she says that she doesn't want to open that space up to cause offence to other people who might be reading it. No, so if she's writing about something that. like trans issues or yeah. all sorts of different things. Yeah, because and it means that if, if they scroll down into the comments, yeah. they might be triggered about all sorts of things that, 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 that they, they didn't sign up for when they started reading and she's, the she's a very see. open person. She's someone who learns a lot. She sees the audience as a resource as much as something that you would spread out to. She's very interactive. She's, she's brilliant at that sort of stuff. She uses her Facebook, which she obviously guards very carefully over who can be part of, but she uses that beautifully to learn a lot and to ask advice. She's very good at asking questions online, but she's very careful about what spaces she asks those questions because of the topic that she writes about. And we had that with the New Left Project on climate stuff, was that suddenly we got, com- we don't normally get any comments at all on New Left Project. Occasionally we get stuff on Israel, Palestine, or sometimes we get somebody saying something really relevant. We wrote a piece that was quite controversial, we published a piece that was quite controversial about the Stop the War movement, and those people who felt they were misdescribed in it had a long conversation in it, and then we let the, those people write another piece, and it was a, it was a genuine conversation. It brought yeah, out debates true. that otherwise would have been a bit closed, and I'm still not sure whether it was right to... I think it was right to publish it, and I think it was right that we had that... Comp- that we brought out that debate. So it, sort of, it, was a, it was a good, positive debate, but normally we just don't get much at all. Um, it's not like The Guardian comments for you or anything. Um, and similarly, I don't get much on my own. Well, no, I get quite a bit. I get quite a lot of conversation on my own personal blog, and it's going to be quite nice and positive, and it'll be a mixture of sort of, I like this, I don't like this, or do you think this, or have you read this? I get lots of people enthusiastically sharing stuff with me, which is lovely. Yeah. And I love the fact that I can open that space under my writing. Um, but yeah, with the climate stuff, we started getting people who we felt were doing it because they wanted, they did it with an axe to grind rather than to be part of our conversation. And we thought they're totally justified to have that axe grinding somewhere else and have the conversations they want to have about their climate sceptics. I totally stand up for them to have a right to have those conversations elsewhere. And I actually learn from reading them, even if I disagree with them. And I've learned from disagreeing with them and them disagreeing with me. But overall, the other people, particularly on on New Left Project, didn't want those opinions to be something that we published because it's our space. And we felt that that stood for something. And our readers complained about us publishing them and felt alienated by that and didn't like it so in the end we chose not to publish a certain number of, and now those 
that community has stopped even bothering me, haven't been having to delete any email or any... It's a, it's um, a tricky thing though, isn't it? If you, you stop comments, if you get yeah. rid of comments, people say, oh, you're, you're, you're shutting down debate. But just as much, you can say that the other way as well. If you're getting like a hundred people shouting mm. without listening in a comment thread, then that does shut down the debate that would have been set by mm. by people who can't deal with that shouting. And so well, we wanted to cultivate particular yeah. threads, and we didn't want to get them drowned out by other ones. Exactly, um, and that's um, your right as as the person yeah. that's setting up that. Web. And I'm the same on Facebook. I mean, it to me, yeah. you know, I, I will delete things on Facebook. I have to, you know, because it's a public space, and I I've made decisions as well. Of like I, I have my Facebook privacy settings public. And I'm trying to push my stuff. I, yeah, it, yeah, it, it makes no, stuff, it makes yeah. no sense to, to to close that down. Um, but but that means that if people are saying things that I don't agree with, then I have to sort of make sure. I mean, you know, I, I believe in free. Like you say, like I, I believe, and I've learned so much from from arguing. But when people say things that just goes over the line, I do delete. But I always feel very guilty about it, especially when they're your friends. Yeah. It's much better if it's some person that you don't know that you say, "No, I delete that." I don't think I ever delete much. I, somebody, I had a fight with some a friend on Facebook, and they deleted a load of things. But I don't think I've deleted anything um, <laughs> on Facebook, or I just haven't. I've never. I don't think I've ever deleted actually. I've just not chosen to publish on things. So on my personal blog, there's things that have been caught by spam, which I haven't published. Mainly, that's just people weirdly e- kind of using it as a form of emailing. I don't know why people do that. A, that was to do with a weird, complex argument I was having with somebody. Their way of communicating with me was to leave comments on my blog, um, and it wasn't relevant to the blog post. And it was they weren't. So they, they were just co- instead they of emailing. Yeah, you, they and but it, caught, it got caught. It was sort of if it had been published by the blog, I would have left it. But it got caught by the spam filter. That's probably only been about three times. So I thought you know, we will just not publish. Um, and then with the new Left Project stuff, we not publish stuff. But I don't think we've ever actually. I've never deleted anything. I don't think. But that's partly because it's with things like the new Left Project, it, you choose to publish. Yeah. And then I think other places, yeah, I haven't deleted. Yeah, they, they, it publishes automatically and then people yeah. delete it afterwards, yeah. I'm quite, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm not scared enough of it, maybe I'm too open, maybe I should be more cautious. I don't think so. I think you've got to make a decision. I mean, I'm putting all my life out online, really, in these conversations. Like, some of them are more, much more personal than others, or some of the episodes aren't even conversations, they're kind of stories or whatever about my life. And it's a hard thing to do because it, it, it's basically putting yourself in a very vulnerable position. And I'm aware that there are dangers to that and I may end up going, oh, you know, it's bitten me, it, you know, a bit enough more, more than I can chew or whatever. But I think that that you kind of make a decision about what you want the world to be and you can be scared or you can be open, you know. And, mm-hmm. like, I've tried more and more to not be scared. And it's, it's not natural to me to... Like in some ways, it's natural to me to be open because I don't have a filter and I just say what comes into my head. But I, at school, you know, I, and in my home life and stuff, it was very, they were very closed-in environments. I was very kind of alienated from the the rest of the group and stuff, and was just quite bullied at school. And that so it, it makes me nervous about putting myself out there because I know how cruel people can be. But I find that the more I'm open, the more I'm honest, and I do like true storytelling as well. The more I'm open about things, the more people respond really well to it, and the more people like have their own stories to tell in response. And I'm sure that that's the same uh, in science communication as it is with kind of intimate storytelling. The more you, you know, you get put out into the world for them, the more they will put out into the world for you. And it's you build trust exactly. Yeah. And so I, th- I think it's a decision. Like I can understand why people make the decision of being and and why people are scared of that, but. 
you gain so much from being open that it seems a shame it's like I always think it's a little bit like like people always say don't let the terrorists win it's a little bit like that like yeah. if you completely change your behaviour just because of some bad commenters then, then they've won haven't they they've, I felt a bit like that with the, yeah with the climate sceptics I didn't want to get too much into a fight it was easier to that one I, I did feel a bit like I was passively aggressively ignoring them like like because I would normally get involved in a conversation like that but I also felt like it was a bit weird all these people talking about me on the internet I just kind of thought it would also be really narcissistic of me to spend loads of time talking to them and I'm not that narcissistic and I'd rather just leave it alone and let them get over themselves <laughs> so I left it uh, may, they may listen to this and think it's weird and judge about it or they may have, I think they've moved on to worrying about other people but um, yeah. it must be weird though to have like that like kind of suddenly like I guess you know you're putting your name you know your name's out there in lots of places and you are you know I guess having to accept that that means that you're a public figure I guess. yeah there's a sort of weird thing because I'm not famous and I'm not a public figure but I'm a little bit no approaching it well I'm not it's not that I'm approaching it I think it's that fame and knowledge of people is, is more easier to be fa- to be aware of other people because of social media these days and there's more people you could be aware of there's that thing about I've used this example with my students when I was teaching social media and the web and science Andy Warhol said everyone in the future will be famous for 15 minutes but I don't think that's true I think we're all famous to 15 people it's that we've got multiple different people a, a little bit famous and like most yeah. people I, I think of like I um, I was at a party a couple of months ago and I was like, oh my God, that's, that's this academic who I've read her pieces and comments free and like, I, 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 like she's not famous, she's as famous as I am, less so, more so, I don't know. Yeah. But she's a little, like, I, I read her and I knew who she was. I, a friend of mine had given me her book for her, my birthday a few years ago, but she's not famous. And I was like, that's, that's, I'm about to do the same thing that freaks me out when other people do it to me, to her, which is, oh my God, you're this person. And I did it and then felt really embarrassed and then I hated when people do this to me and we kind of laughed about it. But yeah. well, I it bet was, she does it to somebody else. Yeah, it's, it's like, like a chain. It's like and, uh, a chain. But it's, I think there's this sort of distributed sort of, not, and so I now get this thing where, it's also, partly also being a writer or an academic, so both of those things are things that you get associated with your name. Which, again, I don't feel really comfortable with. I'd much rather work in a much more anonymous thing. I just ended up doing it. But um, it means that people know who you are. Yeah. Uh, and when you talk in an audience, there's like 300 people and they're just looking at you. So you don't know those 300 people, but they all saw you because you yeah, were talking. Exactly. So I'll go to events or something and like, you know, your name's registered in advance. And you go up and you say, oh, yeah, my name is. And they go, oh, I know who you are. And that's just weird. But it's not that many people who know who I am, but it's enough. It's just like a few of them. No, it's um, weird. It, it, I mean, I, I remember... People who listen to your podcast, they'd be like, yeah, yeah. Well, I wish that would happen, but it happen a bit. on some levels, but also at the other, on other levels, I wish it... I, I hope it doesn't happen, because it, it definitely weirds me out when people recognise me. I guess I did have that, actually, last night, I went, I was at the Hackney Attic for uh, somebody else's night, and somebody said, are you Dave Pickering? I follow you on Twitter. So I did have that <laughs> yeah, experience. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it first happened to me with the knitting stuff. Like, it just occasionally happened with knitting because the knitting blogosphere was like a big thing and I was part of it. And So you go, it would only be normally at knitting events and a bit occasionally. So you go to knitting shops or whatever and you buy some wool and you talk to... And it's a sort of closed community a bit or a specialist community. So you're like, you go to a knitting shop in another country and like, like oh yeah, we're knitting geeks because we're in a knitting shop and we're talking about knitting. And they'll often say, oh, what are you buying this yarn for or whatever? And they say or whatever. And, but sometimes they'd realize, you'd realise that they read your blog. Or like, I go to a knitting shop and I'd publish a few patterns or something. And sometimes knitting shops like make up a particular well-known pattern and have it on just to show off yarn. And just, people who work in knitting shops knit and they put their stuff up on the walls and things. Um, and you go and like see like that. Or like, I've got a couple of friends now. They're like, oh yeah, I, I kind of knew you before we made friends because I like knitted something you designed. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Wow. So I remember getting this like before Twitter or anything like that happened. I remember t- talking about this with my students one one year, and we were chatting about it and like because we were talking about so- science and social media and how it, like a lot of them were training to be journalists and were trying to build a profile and like all the different kinds of this weird distributed fame thing that you get and how it all worked. Um, and then I realised and I had the his- long history of that and so and how you'd always had things on TV and radio and when these sort of media sort of facilitated these things and you get public figures and like tabloid media maybe covering different people's lives and stuff and becoming accidental celebrities and the whole anti whole 15 minutes thing um, and one of my students though he's this amazing guy uh, he was an actor and a writer and then he did a computing degree and then he decided he wanted to be a technology writer so he was doing this technology writing degree with us a uh, really really clever guy one of the cleverest people I've ever taught well I say I taught so I probably learned more <laughs> from him than he did from me but because he used to be in a soap he used to be in Emmerdale Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and his brothers were all actors as well. Um, like the whole family would have got. So he was get that like. And I realised sort of while I was doing the course, while I was teaching him, we were talking about this, and that I didn't want to single him out and make him talk about it because I thought it'd be really unfair on him. But he must have had that in a much more sort of traditional way. And now he must get it a bit on. I know he does like on Twitter. Like people have read t- technology stuff he's written. Or, like he's. he's involved in called midwife and so people know from that as well and like it must be yeah, must be really, yeah. Well, it's, it's, I think it's nice when people recognize you in like in some ways it depends on how they recognize you though doesn't it like it's 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 nice to be rec- to be yeah. acknowledged we all want to be acknowledged if we're doing work so you know whether it's knitting or podcasts or, or science writing whatever we all want to be acknowledged for what we're doing and we want it to be seen so that's really good but then at the same time it's also kind of makes you feel like people are looking at you or you're in a situation where you know like people know who you are in a bad way like like you're that like you've been talking about really of like people people consume your life like when i knit blogs i just thought i was talking to other knit bloggers and i was i guess and we had like a community of knit bloggers and you'd like read other people's knit bloggers and you talk about i talk a bit about my domestic life and so i'd blog about like what was going on in my life and I thought I had relationships and friends through it and while I'm knitting and then I'd say what I'm doing and what I'd, I'd often like write about like a baked a cake and so why had I baked a cake because it was a birthday of a friend or yeah. you know thing and a lot of friends that I made through I've still got friends that I made through knit blogging it was, it's a real sort of community yeah. and then that blog's still there I kind of feel I should take it down actually but it did get a couple of things after having not knit blogged so much and then people who found me for other reasons talking about it so I remember a, somebody an ex-student saying do you know what my ex-boyfriend looked like she's seen a photograph of my knit blog and I just thought I don't mind but it's a little bit weird that is a bit weird also there was somebody who was interacting with me a lot online about some research thing and I realised that he was reading my knit blog and I was just that felt a bit weird as well that was also partly because of him being a bit weird in his approach to me but yeah people I know a bit and I don't really think of them as friends but they follow me on Twitter and I follow them but they don't necessarily like tweet very often Uh, so I don't know what's going on in their lives but I tweet a bit like a a reasonable amount and so they think they know a lot about what's going on in my life and they'll come up and they'll go hi Alice and they'll give me a big hug and I'm like hi it's a bit like a one-sided relationship it's definitely weird do you get with your podcast being so like personal do you find that people know about your personal life yeah that that definitely has happened and that's really weirded me out so at some at some points like uh um, like it's just like friend, even like close friends now know stuff that they just wouldn't have necessarily. It just I would have told them, but it just yeah. never came up in conversation. And so they, they they sort of like you know knowing looks about certain things and stuff that surprised me. But I mean I I also people have contacted me through Twitter who like, live like in different parts of the country and stuff through the podcast who I you know now communicate with quite regularly. It's weird, but it, it, 
it's definitely weird but I don't know if it's always like I like those people I like the fact that I've made those connections and I like the fact that like so far all the people who've reached out to me about my podcast have been people I've liked oh, yeah. I guess that's why they like, like that's why they've reached out to me is because they see something in my podcast that they relate to oh, I have so many friends that I've made either not so much online but like as part of it or sometimes yeah, that might be exactly. the first time I've met them and then the other things around has been it's been a facilitator of a lot of relationships yeah, I'd me say. Too. and I'm so there have only been a few weird cases but I do sort of there is this thing about like people consuming your life and you not especially with things like Twitter which are a bit parasocial you don't like more people follow me than I follow them so there's more people who consume me than I can it's not reciprocal in the way that Facebook or yeah. other things can be a bit more reciprocal well, although I do find I meet with other friends now because of Facebook that, that, that they know all of the things that have happened to me and they know all of the articles I want to talk to them about like yeah. it's like so, so or they don't or, or I expect them to know about an article yeah. that they don't know about and then I'm like you know oh, they're expecting a friend of mine his best friend got um, mugged and like put it on Facebook and then loads of people talked about it on Facebook like it was you can imagine how this would happen like something awful happens to you and you tell Facebook and the loads of people respond and yeah. it's actually really lifely and supportive yeah. and I can see why you do that rather than just tell a few people I've been in similar sort of things where like good and bad things like do I tell the internet or do I tell Facebook which is a small bit of the internet or do I tell only just my best friends or something yeah. or, um, do, you, do, I, like, or do, you, do I even need to say yeah. anything or like, like, what, what, what do you do so you like, but there's that kind of choice about is this a big thing or anyway how you and he, but he told the internet or he told Facebook and he had a sort of big collective lots of people sort of going oh you're alright and everything but this my friend who knew this guy and happened not to be online that day so he just didn't see it he hadn't been on Facebook for a bit so normally like a big deal would probably come up on your timeline or something so you you'd see it but he hadn't so he didn't and then he went on back on Facebook and like, then he saw his friend like in real life a couple of days later and he's like oh yeah and he, like, his friend had assumed he knew so he and he didn't him. and so he didn't tell him and then he, they had this like long conversation and he felt really ex- it, it, was, it was problematic because of that yeah. he decided he'd go offline for like a whole month or something and he just told all his friends let's go back to old school thing if something big happens to you email me I'm on email I have conversations on email I will chat to you on the phone I'm not being antisocial but just as an ex- also, I think he was feeling a bit exhausted by it all. Um, just you know, for a, an experiment, I will have a month off the internet, and I think he came back to it a little bit more refreshed. Yeah, no, I sometimes do. I have been recently thinking that even though I don't want to do that, that's probably something that would be healthy for me to occasionally do in my life. Of just completely unplugging from the net and just I unplug not... for hours on end. Well, that's also, good. Yeah, and I see some sort of like oh. Well, the stuff will have happened on the internet and I won't know about it like if I found an interesting story that I want to share like maybe everyone should be talking about it all day I don't like no, it's not something I need to bother being worried yeah. about if it I want to share it yeah, exactly doesn't matter if you're the first to share it but I'm definitely like that it's, like, not, it's, not the, it's like is it just big banal by now or like will something happen or like it is that like did I miss like my friend announcing that she's had a baby or something yeah well that's increasingly yeah. like people decide more and more to do that on Facebook because of the fact that that's announcing to everybody in one go and you don't have yeah. to have so many conversations about it but then it is easy to miss stuff yeah it is definitely and, and I definitely think people need to like consider that as well like you can really shock people like if they don't know things and stuff like you, need, you have to make sure you tell the, the you have to make sure you tell your closest friends things that are important before you tell your, your, your like, distant acquaintances. I, I changed jumps over the summer, I like, had stages of it, so there were stages of who knew and when, and I really, I quite enjoyed that, I quite like picking who are my friends who are going to tell, and like when, and know, them knowing that they were special, that I was like, I'm just going to tell you this, I haven't told the internet yet, and then I told Facebook, and then a colleague of mine who's not on Facebook is like, you haven't told anyone? I was like, well, I told some people. <laughs> it was nice. It kind of yeah. let, there's something about being really open that means that moments of secrecy are more special now. As well? Absolutely, I, yeah. I, 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 that's that chimes in really well with my 
is my life at the yeah. moment. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you. It's been, uh, it's, I, I, I didn't even look. I had my, no, I had notes, and I okay. didn't even look at any of them because. Uh, because the, the conversation was flowing. I think that's it's, it's, it's always good to, to, to be talking to somebody with a lot to say, which is what I am as well. So uh, thank you for saying I recognise. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, 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 yeah, I have, I have to be careful that I don't just talk for the whole hour. And just, uh, uh, part of the reason I do the show is to learn to listen to people more. Um, but uh, the last thing I asked, question that I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? No, I, I genuinely don't have anything to plug. It's a problem. People keep asking me to like give talks and stuff on like that, and so give me something to talk about. I'll talk about it. So we like we had a conversation that was great. But yeah, yeah, I don't sure. Really well, it's a, it's a it's a it's a random question that sometimes. I mean, you can you can follow me on Twitter, but I, honestly, I've got enough followers. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so, quite boring I'm really a friend of mine recently was like who's in the pub he's like I don't know why you've got so many followers you're really boring I'm like yeah I know I'm sorry well she link, you link to uh, you link to interesting articles and, and and so I definitely would recommend people following you you can follow me but I can't promise to be interesting it's at Alice Bell it is it's easy to remember that's maybe why I've got so many followers yeah because you like got the, you got like you didn't have to have Alice Bell one or anything I, like, I do follow another there. Alice Bell mainly because it freaks me out when she reads she doesn't follow me back um she's another academic in a very similar area we've never met occasionally i get her emails every now and again i think i quite like to like email her and say or oh, we should meet or like co-write something if she's listening hello alice yeah. alice and alice bell <laughs> we could have yeah, yeah. Could co-author a paper It'd be quite funny yeah that would be funny. Uh, but i i also have there's a, a way in which academics have an internal system for applying for grant money and i have the um alice bell login for that and i wonder how i managed to get it before her and whether that pisses her off more than the fact that i've got the alice bell twitter account that probably does piss her off more Okay. <laughs> uh, you're, you're kind of a kind of nemesis. You're the one who's like there, there before, before her. Maybe she should be my nemesis. No, I, I think, I think the one who gets there first is definitely the villain. I reckon. I'm quite happy at the moment. <laughs> it's where I just, I just follow her on Twitter and get freaked out when she retweets things. It says Alice Bell retweet. I'm like, no, I didn't. Oh, it's the other one. Oh, that's cool. Um, <laughs> you should follow her too. Yeah, plug her. <laughs> yeah, there you, there you go. We'll follow any Alice Bell you yeah, like on I'm Twitter. I'm sure there's many of us. And. <laughs> And of course, I mean, I'll put up links to, to your podcast as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, Martin would love me to plug that. So yes, there's the Brain Train podcast. Again, <laughs> we're finding our feet with that and it's a little bit... I'm going to blame Martin for his problem with that. No, it's, it's great. It's, it's, we just recorded one on uh, particle physics, which was really interesting. Po- podcasting is a medium where people learn in public. Yeah. Uh, so, in, you know, that's fine. It's fine to be finding your feet. And, you know, audiences want to kind of... Find 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 your feet with you. I think they like they like going with. I you. like the scrappiness of podcasting. I listen to lots yeah. of sort of, and I like that's what I like about blogging as well and knitting. Like it's all been just you fail in public and you learn from that and that's good. Yeah, mm. yeah. No, I mean, I mean, yeah, definitely. Make a kind of a there's, 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 it's, again, it's a it's a there's pros and cons to failing in public. Certainly, I feel like I'm glad that I failed. Did, I, I'm glad I did most of my early failing offline. And I'm glad that I did most of my early failing with a, only a small audience of my friends. But that said, failing in public has been probably the best learning experiences for making me better at doing stuff. Although, I mean, I, I, if I hadn't failed so many times early on with my friends, I could probably persuade more of my friends to come to my gigs. You know? <laughs> I think that's the thing, like, if friends are the ones who get the, they, they get the uh, exhaustion of like, oh, not another thing. That last thing I saw wasn't any good. And when you get to the point where you're doing 
good that's stuff. True. They're like, oh, I'm not coming to his things. But anyway, that's what I, that's my opinion about my friends. My I've, friends re- are, I've recently discovered that having occasionally done that with friends, written them off and realised that I should I should now you know rediscover what they what they've travelled and I've known some of my friends for like a long time and like. Oh yeah, I've done that myself as well. Yeah, exactly. And then I've real, suddenly realised that they're brilliant these days. And, they're, they're, and, and it's funny actually. One of the things I've, I've really learned in recent years, like putting on nights, is you can see someone five years ago and think they they got nothing in them, and then like three years later they're doing something like their comedy or whatever it is. It's just like hitting a different level that you just never thought it would. Should be so yeah. quick to judge people. It's That's really right. important, isn't it? Yeah. That's yeah. true. <laughs> so on that note, I mean, the, the last thing that I asked people to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Oh, goodbye. It came out as a surprise. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way and on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.